0: We're on the third message of a series entitled, Understanding the Times, Understanding the Political Divide in the Heart of the United States of America and How a Biblical Worldview and the Gospel Gives Clarity and Hope. We've done a message on the gospel and what is the gospel itself. And we've done one message in which we looked at the The topic of justice. What does the Bible say about justice? And what about the term social justice? Some might ask, why do such a series? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The reality is that from the very beginning... And the Apostle Paul told the elders at Ephesus this, that wolves would try and creep in to the churches of God and lead people astray. Some people might say, well, why address controversial topics? Why not just preach about the things we all agree about? Well, to do so would not be to follow the example of God who gave us the New Testament scriptures. Because you can hardly find a book in the New Testament that does not specifically address false doctrine. And sometimes, many times over, addressing false doctrines. Some people say, well, why take a polemical approach? Why take the approach of of trying to fight against false teachings? Isn't it the case that if people just hear the truth, that they're going to be fine? There's an old analogy. Well,. The dollar bill and you just teach people to recognize the real thing and then you don't even have to show them the fake thing well in one sense yes this is good we're pursuing truth but here's the reality that's not what God chose to do in the Bible God specifically over and over and over again in the writings of Scripture addressed attacked dismantled multiple false philosophies and gave details about those false views those false philosophies and why they were wrong and what we ought to think about them rightly so i'm trying to follow the example that god has given us in preaching the whole counsel of god but we're not preaching this message and analyzing what's going on in our world so we can say oh woe is me i need to go dig a very deep hole and stay in my hole if at all possible Absolutely not. The love of Christ compels us to go into this world and to preach truth. So we are not called to live by fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. And we look at the examples throughout history of godly people who have even laid down their lives in order to proclaim truth to the very people that were stoning them to death. Stephen, as he is being stoned to death, preaches and witnesses to the gospel. The Apostle Paul in Jerusalem, a mob is formed at the temple. He is being beaten. He's taken into custody. He is pleading with the Roman official, let me preach to the crowd, the same crowd that was beating him, and he stood up and gave them the gospel. People have shed their blood and they've laid down their lives to the very people who were cursing them and cutting their flesh, taking their lives because they loved them and wanted them to be saved. And so I think that we in the United States of America right now can take a stand for the truth and do it in love. And we can reach out to our neighbors. not preaching this message or any of these messages to develop an us-them mentality where we say, I don't want to go near you Transsexual person. I don't want anything to do with you. Homosexual get out of my life. You make me sick. I want nothing to do with you. We are not promoting that now clearly. And I referenced first Corinthians chapter five last week. If There's somebody who claims to be a brother and we plead with them to repent and they refuse to repent of sin. Then they are to be put out of the church. But the apostle Paul in first Corinthians chapter five said, I did not in any way mean that you are not to associate with the people in the world who are fornicators and immoral people. He said, no, basically, God forbid, of course, you go out and you talk to your neighbors. Of course, you go out and give the gospel. So we don't live in fear. But yet we try to live in wisdom. Jesus said to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that's what we're seeking to do. Well, I want to do part two on the issue of justice and social justice. This concept of social justice that we began, have begun to look at is the broad umbrella. It is the overarching theme of progressivism and how progressivism is carried out. And when I use the term progressivism, you realize for a long time we would just talk about liberals and conservatives. But now there there are people who say that they are classical liberals and they are being attacked by the progressives. They are being attacked by the neo-Marxists. They are being threatened and run out of their own classrooms. And, and these classical liberals are not people in any way, shape, or form we would identify with and say they're godly because they're people who are saying, I think gay marriage should be legal in the world. I just said in a classroom that I would be disgusted by homosexual, viewing homosexual interaction. And for that, the students are demanding the dean that I be kicked out of my own class. You see, so we've gone we've we've gone a lot farther left in many ways than liberalism now. And there is a strong, strong progressive neo-Marxist and socialistic push that's going on in this nation. Social justice, then I'm going to run through by way of review very quickly. Just read my notes some of the things we looked at last time. This concept of social justice is defined in many different ways. One definition, social justice is the equal access to wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Equal access to wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. But what you find out when you read deeper is they're not talking about just giving everybody a legal, fair, playing field what they're talking about is manipulating outcomes redistributing wealth demanding that people celebrate things that they believe to be ungodly okay another definition social justice is a concept of fair and just relations between the individual and society this from wikipedia this is measured by the explicit and tacit terms for the distribution of wealth, opportunities for personal activity, and social privileges. Notice that again. Distribution of wealth, opportunities for personal activity, social privileges. Merriam-Webster says that social justice is a state or doctrine of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is that which seeks to make all things equal. Level it all out. The Oxford... Dictionary says, justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. So we see those things again. Distribution of wealth, opportunities, privileges. Votie Bauckham quoted William H. Young, who described social justice as, quote, state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. When you hear about social justice, you're always going to hear the terms rights. You're going to hear the terms, terms like we're just wanting to make sure they pay their fair share. Or they get their fair share. Okay, so it's a serious matter. Brother Rick read for us from Micah chapter 6. What does God demand of us? What does he expect of us? To do justice. And so if this idea of social justice is right, that means it's something that God demands of us. So we need to know about it. What is this? And I proposed last week that we shouldn't even use the terminology social justice because it is loaded with baggage. It's rooted in Marxism. It has a history and the way that it is used in society comes with all of this neo-Marxist baggage of taking from the wealthy and the diligent, redistributing and redistributing based upon groups it views everything through the neo-marxist lens of the oppressors and the oppressed and if you are in the majority group you inherently according to their views are the oppressor and the minority groups are the oppressed and therefore you owe reparations to you must take a back seat to bow to those who are victims, victims of your power, victims of your power structures. And so, who are the who's the majority in the United States of America? Well, it's whites, and the white male is at the very top of the oppressor list. And so, basically, from this perspective. White males, unless they are literally bowing and scraping to everyone else under them, willing to acknowledge their privilege, so-called, and to repent of things that perhaps they've never even done or thought, cannot have a say in society. And if they're dealing with racial issues, the only way they're even allowed to speak is to point to the leaders of the various races and allow them to speak for themselves. They have to be allies. If they take a stand on any of these matters, they're told, you don't have a right to speak because you are in the privileged, powerful group. What's one of the major problems with that? Truth! (laughs) I want to hear truth from anybody out there. I don't care what you look like. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care if your eyes are close set or wide apart. I don't care anything about that. If you have truth to speak, I want to hear truth. And we have to be guided by truth. I'll get into that more next week when we talk about identity politics, which is so prevalent today. So this social justice divide society into groups that are viewed as either oppressors or victims, depending on the perceived amount of power or wealth in those particular groups. And groups that are listed amongst the oppressors are women, even though women are not a minority because there are more women than men in the United States of America. Vodi Bachum pointed out, y'all, there are more of them than of us speaking to the men. And... But women, women are perceived as an oppressed group. So women's rights has been a big issue over the decades. LGBTQA+, the lesbian and gay and bisexual, transgender, queer, allies, those who are supporting them, and plus whatever other perverse form of sexual identity you give yourself are one of these groups those who are poor, the various minority groups. These groups, says social justice, are being denied their rights due to systemic injustices in government and society, and thus the government and society owes it to them to distribute wealth to them, to ensure opportunities for them by law, and to protect their privileges. But see, the problem with social justice is is that although it calls for individuals to band together in society and form groups to promote this type of so-called justice, what it ultimately does, because people are not going to readily get behind giving up all of their money to other people, they ultimately demand that at law, There are laws passed to take from certain groups and give to other groups. Laws passed to protect the so-called rights of like the gay and lesbian and all these groups. So you have equality laws that are going on the books now in which they will say that sexual orientation and gender gender identity should be protected classes under anti-discrimination laws. Right now, there's a bill before Congress, and it's been proposed for several years in a row now and hasn't passed, but there's a bill before Congress that's called the Equality Act, which wants to amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and add sexual orientation and gender identity to protected status in regard to housing and employment and many other different categories or groups. What does that that mean? What would this do at the national level? And there are already 20 states that have such laws in place, you realize. But what this would do at the national level is would make it illegal for someone as a small business owner who has a man walk in dressed as drag and acting like a woman and who says, I want a job, and this man is a Christian, and he says, no, I can't give you a job because of the way that you're presenting yourself. And and that would be illegal under this type of legislation to deny someone a job based on that determination. There are already over 70 nations in the world That have these types of laws put in place. Europe has basically completely gone this direction. The United States of America is on this train, and that's where we're headed. Unless the Lord intervenes. Unless people stand up and say, this is not right. It is not just. It is not fair. We have in our very Constitution... The right to assemble for religious um, purposes, the right to freedom of conscience religiously. And you see, this is a direct attack against those things. Social justice proponents often speak of terms of equality of access or equality of opportunities. But they then showed that what they're really striving for is equality of outcome, because they will reference disparities in society, like they'll say there's a wage gap between men and women, that there's disparities in representation of government. I was watching a debate over in Australia, and there was a a woman representative on this panel, and she was saying, we're a representative uh, government here in Australia, so they're... And and there's at least an equal number of women in Australia than men. So we need to have quotas in place to make sure that we have at least as many women as men in our parliament. And there was a man from their parliament who was there on the panel as well. And he said, well, one issue with that is that there are plenty of women who vote for men. You know, you are, you are artificially imposing this structure regardless of the qualifications of the people running for office, regardless of their views. You're establishing these quotas. And he's like, this doesn't make sense. It's not helpful. So these views, though, have permeated our society in the United States of America. They're being promoted in our government. Think about health care. This idea of social justice and health care. We have a big push now for single-payer health care in the United States of America. We got Obamacare, but there's those like Bernie Sanders and others, they say that hasn't even gone close to far enough. We need to have a Medicaid, Medicare for all, single-payer, across the board. But then what happens, invariably what happens, and we've already seen that in Canada and other nations who have this, is then there will be, there has to be a determination of whose coverage is going to be paid who gets the operation who gets the services and there will be government officials who are going to decide then whether you or your loved ones are going to get medical care and if they decide that you're not going to get it because they're not going to pay for it then your only other option is to go through some private means and pay out of pocket which in many nations around the world people are desperately trying to do because this is failed folks it's it's a ridiculous system that doesn't work in Finland, in Finland, just two weeks ago, the entire cabinet of the government in Finland resigned. You know why they resigned? They resigned because their single-payer healthcare system is so bankrupting the nation that this cabinet was entrusted with trying to privatize health care to a higher degree so that the nation didn't just completely go bankrupt and they weren't able to do it they said we're not able to do this at this point and they just resigned and they just stepped down finland's going bankrupt because it doesn't work and so in nations like finland increasingly there are private healthcare services and providers being established and people are trying to Go to those private ones because the governmental system of healthcare is a total failure. It doesn't work. We're in the midst of a, an experiment in all of Western society. And many of these things have not been tested to this degree or this level in our knowledge of human history. And it, these things are going to fail miserably. People are going to be hurt. These things are not good because they're not based in biblical principles. Well, if it was just that this idea of social justice was out there in the world, we know worldly people are going to act like worldly people. It wouldn't be as much of a concern, even though it does affect our everyday lives. But the reality is these ideas of social justice are beginning to creep into the conservative and the conservative, reformed Christian church. Not just the liberal churches, which a long time ago went this route and have gone up the deep end decades ago. Not just conservative, even Armenian groups, but even in conservative, more reformed groups. So... And the Southern Baptist Convention and some who are on the Ethics uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission are beginning to promote these ideas of social justice, men like Russell Moore. The Gospel Coalition and some of those who are part of the Gospel Coalition are beginning to promote social justice ideas. Now, they haven't gone to the point of saying it's okay for someone to practice homosexual practice. But they're using the terms social justice, and they're beginning to look through the lenses of this idea of oppressed and oppressors, and they're starting to bring in speakers to their conferences who are fully in this camp, and saying, we have to give them a voice because they're the ones that have street cred. They're the ones that have credibility to speak on this. In other words, if you want somebody to speak about LGBTQ plus issues, then you really need to get a same-sex attracted individual who's going to be able to speak about it because everybody's going to listen to him. Or if you're going to talk about racial issues, you've, you've got to find African-American pastors to speak on these things because they have credibility and there are concerns there again if somebody's speaking truth then we should want to listen and we shouldn't exclude anyone based on something like the color of their skin if they're preaching truth they should be welcomed in But the whole issue of same sex attraction is a very complex issue, and we're going to do an entire message on that. And so these things are beginning to creep in, and this social justice terminology is beginning to be debated and widely used in many of these circles. Well, what is justice according to the scriptures? Because again, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Says that God demands for us to do justice. If you do word studies in Scripture, like we looked at the word Mishpat, which is translated judgment or justice, <clears throat> justice, and this summarized by in the Easton's Bible Dictionary, justice is rendering to everyone that which is his due. Justice is giving to someone what is owed him. Okay? And so, how do we know what is someone's due? How do we know if something is owed to someone? How do we know if they have a right to something? Ultimately, it's because God tells us that in His Word. And then we examine the circumstances to see if this is an instance where justice is due to someone. So God, in His Word, defines theft as wrongfully taking someone else's property. And so if we examine a situation and we say this person has wrongfully taken this other person's property, then they are due justice. It is owed to them that the person who stole from them return their property, if possible, and repay them multiple times over for the damages that they have caused by the theft. So we look at that and say that's a justice issue. It's a justice issue. But if somebody says, everybody has a right to health care insurance, everybody has a right, it's a matter of justice, that you have health care insurance, I would simply propose this. Where do you find in scripture, either by principle or by direct statement, the idea that somebody else owes it to you to pay for you in insurance, which will cover you in case you get ill or need operations? It's not there. You do not have a right for someone else to pay for your health care insurance. Health care insurance is a privilege. It is something societies haven't even had in any realistic form up until recent history. But some go so far as to even say, good health is a right. People owe it to you to have good health. Where do you get that idea? Have you sinned against me if I get cancer? Do I have a right, according to God, not to get sick? Not at all. God teaches us that we are to endure illness and do it for the glory of God. It's not a matter of rights. Not a matter of rights. Mishpat... In the scriptures, which is the most common word translated as justice or judgment, refers to the act of deciding a case of litigation, Deuteronomy 25, 1. The place of deciding a case of litigation, such as 1 Kings 7, 7. The process of litigation is called mishpat, Job 22, verse 4. A case of litigation is called this, such as in 1 Kings 3.11, a sentence or decision issuing from a magistrate or a court. It's very common rendering of this, such as in Jeremiah 26.11 and verse 16. The time of judgment, such as in Psalms 1 and verse 5. It can refer to an ordinance or a law such as in Isaiah 42, verse 4. But you see, what's at the heart of this is legal justice, getting justice at law, okay? Namely, as we summarized, giving to people what they are due or owed, and in particular, mishpat refers to the formal legal setting in which Cases will be decided so that people get justice, okay? Justice is different than mercy in the scriptures. You realize that, right? We're told in Micah that we're to love justice and we're to do mercy. You see, when we do mercy, we're giving someone something that is not their due. But if we're doing justice, we are giving someone something that is owed to them. You see, both of these are are called on we are to do both of these well social justice is a perversion of true justice and a danger to society and the church because this is such a loaded term it comes with so much baggage it's like a stick of dynamite that is ancient and the nitroglycerin is oozing out of it maybe some of you Saw the old MacGyver episode when he had a whole box of this stuff and he's doing his MacGyver thing to try and stabilize this dynamite that has this nitroglycerin oozing out of it. You know, the stuff's unstable. You drop it and boom, it blows. This terminology is unstable, it's not helpful. We don't do well to use it and incorporate it into the church because of what it means to those we're communicating to. Okay? We have to be careful in our terminology. But it's not just an issue of terminology, it's an issue of issues, and we're going to be getting into more of those as we go. But social justice perverts true justice. Problems with social justice. For instance, a common social justice cause is a woman's right to reproductive health. What do they mean by reproductive health? Literally, if you want to put it in biblical terminology, the right to murder your baby. The right to murder your child. But but what has been done through this neo-Marxist lens, they view women as victims and men as oppressors. And so the way a woman regains her power and her rights and privileges is having the right to control Her womb and her body, you know, all these old arguments that are so ridiculous because the baby is not her body. Okay? And so when she does that, which can lead to a baby which is not her body being developed in the womb, do you punish? a living human being in the womb by death and call it a right for the woman to do so. You see, it perverts true justice. James White recently stood before the Phoenix, Arizona Council and he talked about one of the camps in Nazi Germany in which... The wife of the head of this concentration camp had a fascination with human skin. So she had lampshades made out of the skin of people that they had destroyed and a fascination with tattoos. And so she saved the tattoos cut off of the skin of people that were murdered. And the citizens of the town would not go and look at what was being done there. And then they claimed... That they didn't know what was going on, so they were not responsible for the action. And James White gave a clarion call to the city of Phoenix, and he said, history will show that with this issue of abortion and murdering children in the womb, that people standing back and saying, I don't see what is going on, and therefore I am innocent of what is happening, will be proved to be false. Because what is going on with the murder of children in the womb is at least or more gruesome and violent and vile as what was being done in that concentration camp. And he was calling the city to act and to become a sanctuary city for the child in the womb, give protection to the child in the womb. Michael Novak pointed out In an article, social justice, not what you think it is, this idea of reproductive rights, he quoted a group promoting this, quote, the privilege in this world for the most part, and this is a group promoting social justice, okay? The privileged in this world, for the most part, have unfettered access to the reproductive health and education services to decide for themselves when and whether to bear or raise a child. The poor and disadvantaged do not. See, they're dividing people based on groups already, right? And privileged and and unprivileged, oppressed victim and oppressor, you see. Thus, the struggle for reproductive justice is inextricably bound up with the effort to secure a more just society. And what do they mean by reproductive justice? They mean a woman having enshrined by law and paid for by tax dollars murdering her baby. The terms victim and oppressor I want to really encourage us not to use terminology of victimhood to refer to women who voluntarily choose to walk in and murder their own babies. <coughs> they may have been lied to. They may have been pressured. But ultimately, they are responsible before God. And in this day and age, there is too much information available for them to plead ignorance. They have a responsibility to pursue righteousness and justice. You know, do you think if we are to murder people that we can stand before God and say, oh, I didn't know it was murder, so it's okay. It doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul was murdering Christians and he said, I was formerly a murderer. Okay? Okay. We didn't say, "Well, you German soldiers, you're just following orders, so no Nuremberg trial for you." You see, the excuses of "Well, I was following orders," or "I was deceived," or whatever else, it it does not apply in God's court, and it shouldn't apply in human courts. The question is: Did you commit the crime? Are you guilty? That's the question in God's court. The idea of gay rights, of course, social issue. Arcus, uh, a group promoting these types of issues under their social justice heading. They say there needs to be increased, increased inclusion and acceptance of LGBTQ people. And they say here's an anticipated outcome. So they show they're not just about equal opportunities at law, They're not just about saying gay people should be be able to ride on public transportation just like straight people or gay people, you know, shouldn't be taxed out of existence like straight people shouldn't be. No, they're looking for full acceptance, celebration of enshrined by the law, because here's what they say, anticipated outcome positive public perceptions, narratives, and discourses that appreciate the full diversity and experiences of LGBTQ people produced in conjunction with or by LGBTQ people themselves, identity politics, especially those pushed to the margins. Previously, they said... Under this heading, Anticipated Outcomes, Increased LGBTQ Affirming Protections. International, regional, national, and local policies fully protect and uphold the human rights and fundamental freedoms. And then they show that they're not just meaning if a man stabs somebody because he heard that he's gay, that man should be punished at law for assaulting a gay person. What do they mean? Positive public perceptions, narratives, discourses that appreciate the full diversity and experiences. They want absolute celebration. And if you disapprove in any way, shape or form of their practices, they want you shamed and silenced. Because you are unjust, according to their view. Well, what's our what are our marching orders? Truth. Truth. <laughs> And speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. But that means not avoiding truth, but it means showing that we really care about them and we don't want them to go to hell. Right? Speaking the truth in love means not just standing up and saying, go to hell, everybody, go to hell. It means saying, be safe, flee from the wrath to come. But I've got to tell you that you're in danger of the wrath to come because you're sinning against God. And you must repent and be saved. The poor's right to health care, you know, is another issue that they take up. One of the ways that one of the ways that many people have bought into this idea. And I've, I've done a message on this in the past on the issue of taxation. Why? Why do we think it's just to even have a progressive tax system? We have a progressive tax system. What that means is, the more money you make, the more income you have, the higher percent of your income you're required to pay. So it progresses. It's not that everybody pays 15%, and then if you make 100,000, or let's say 10%, because math is easier, because I'm not really good at math on my feet, but let's say it's It's not saying a flat tax idea. everybody pays fifteen percent so if you make ten thousand dollars ten percent if you make a thou or if you make ten thousand dollars, you pay one thousand dollars. But if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you pay ten thousand dollars ten times as much as the person that has made less, but yet you're paying the same amount the same or the same percentage. You see that's fair. And everything that God set up in his economy in Israel was based on people paying equal percentages. So why is it just that if somebody works harder, is more diligent, makes more money, that they have to pay a higher percentage? And then you know what you hear in this issue of social justice You hear people saying all the time, well, we just want the rich to pay their fair share. They just have to pay their fair share. But you know what? In 2014, the top 10% of earners paid more than the bottom 90% combined in federal income taxes. The top 10% paid more in federal income taxes then the bottom 90% combined. But yet, people are still screaming out, the rich aren't paying their fair share. Yes, they are, they're keeping our government going. So, things like the progressive tax system, we've, we've given up on that one a, whole long, a long time ago. And there are people that are staunch conservatives that don't have an issue with the progressive tax system. But I look at it and say, is it just according to God's principles that you have to pay a higher percentage? And I question the justice of that. It's not the way God did it. God did make provisions for those who were destitute and needy. If someone owned a field, they were not to glean the edges of their field. But then the poor were required to come and work by gleaning from that. But if they were truly destitute, not having food or clothing, enough food or clothing, which is the definition of true poverty in the scriptures, then the poor could come and work for that. God allowed, based on someone's income, and you see this in the account of Mary and Joseph, God allowed for someone who is impoverished, to bring a turtle dove, for instance, as a sacrifice, rather than a a lamb or a ram. But does that mean that that was some type of progressive system? No, because as a matter of fact, the more wealthy person could more afford a ram than the impoverished person could afford a turtle dove. And so when you look at the amount of income that they would have had and the resources that they would have had, It was just more of a way of making it a flat tax type of offering that was brought. Okay. In the rest of our time, the next few minutes, we're going to dig into a few more specific texts of Scripture. What is wrong with this concept of social justice? As I've already pointed out, it perverts justice invariably. Secondly, it wrongly encourages viewing everything through the lens of group identity. It wrongly encourages viewing everything through the lens of group identity. Does, does God want us to be focused down to the minute detail about on the group that we're a part of, and everything in society, and all of us, the laws in society, everything should be focused around the groups, the whites and the blacks and the... Latinos and the women compared to the men and and if you want to start breaking it down further the transgendered compared to the cisgendered and you see politics these days it's all about groups what group do you fit in and the more victimized in their view groups that you're a part of then the more you are owed and so if you are African-American a woman and transgendered then you are owed everything but if you are a wealthy white male then just shut your mouth and sit down it's the way they view things but is that god's way of viewing things is that what god says No, ultimately, broadly, God breaks all of humanity into two groups. What are those groups? All of humanity, two main groups. The saved and the lost. For those of us who are saved, how are we to view the lost? We're to view them as lost, but we are to love them and desire for them to be part of our group, to be saved. And so it's not this othering them because we also recognize as those who are saved that we were a part of that group previously and that it's god's mercy and his grace ephesians 2 8 and 9 for grace by grace you're safe your faith that not of yourselves it's the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast ephesians 2 and verse 1 says you have the quickened made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you walked according to the the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the others, you see. So we recognize that through the gospel, God's grace has been poured on us, and he has taken us and transferred us, it says in the book of Colossians, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have been loved in the beloved, in Christ Jesus. And so we don't blur the lines and say, everybody is a child of God. Let's all just join hands and sing, let there be peace on earth. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Why? Because when God takes someone out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, they're fighting a different war. They're on a different side in a battle. But how do we fight? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they're not fleshly. We don't go in with swords and try and cut off their heads. But they're powerful in God to pulling down strongholds and we're supposed to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay? But there are two broad groups. Lost and saved. Now, consider Throughout the Jewish history, when the Jews were the covenanted people of God, how did they view all of humanity? How many groups? Two groups, right? There, were, there was them, the Jews, and then there were the Gentiles, also called the Greeks in the New Testament. Now, what has God taught us in his word That now under the new covenant, he has done in regard to those two peoples, he has brought them into one. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in 14. And this is, this for us is a proper application of the gospel, considering what the gospel does. The gospel unites us together, the good news and then the work that Christ has done and the Holy Spirit applying that work to our lives, unites us together with all others that God has done this work for around the world. And it doesn't matter what color our skin, it doesn't matter what nation we're from, it doesn't matter what language we speak. We are one with all other believers, right? Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 14 For he, Christ himself, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. All those old covenant laws that kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate or distinct, this says God abolished those in order to bring the two together. The separation laws... The dietary laws were given specifically in Leviticus 20 to separate the people of Israel from the nations around them. The holy war codes. All of those things are abolished in Christ because he has made the two one. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, Gentiles, afar off. And to those who were near Jews. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. Ultimately, there are two groups, saved and lost. And God has brought and saved and continues to save people from all tribes, tongues and nations. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. I'm just going to read this for us. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. The problem with social justice, so-called is it demands categorizing people by every conceivable group identity in order to identify privilege and determine who owes whom. What the Bible teaches us is that we all owe God. And that if there are individual instances where we wrong one another, those are to be dealt with in a court of law, according to biblical principles. Or they're to be dealt with in the jurisdiction of the church, if it's something within the church. That is not a criminal matter with the nation. But. We we don't point to our ethnicity or our nationality. As the distinguishing characteristic of our identity. We identify in Christ. And that means. That if there's a Nigerian Christian. And comes over to visit the United States. Or we go over to visit them. We have more in common with them as believers. Than I would have with a white male neighbor who is lost in sin. So it wrongly encourages group identity. Also, this idea of social justice wrongly promotes victim status and entitlement based on group affiliation, even if you are not being wronged. Victim status and entitlement based on group affiliation, even if you are not being wronged. Folks, here's the reality. One of the biggest underlying philosophies that drive people into sin and keep them in sin is having a victim mentality or an entitlement mentality. If people will not take responsibility for their actions, but they will blame all their actions on victimhood, I'm a victim, and maybe they were a victim of something in the past, but then they begin to make excuses, they begin to identify themselves as a victim, they begin to refuse to take responsibility and to say, you know what? In Christ, I'm a new creature. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. I can do what is right. I'm not going to view myself as a victim constantly. Then they'll never repent of sin truly and they'll never be a good member of society. What about entitlement? Everybody owes it to me. You owe it to me to give me health care. You owe it to me to give me money. You owe it to me To give me an Xbox. Kids, you don't have a right to an Xbox. You don't have a right to a phone. Your parents don't owe you to get you any of those things. What God says your parents owe you is to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to give you basic food, shelter, and clothing. Those are your rights. But if you don't even get those rights... That still doesn't mean that you are re- are not responsible for whatever sinful choices you make. We we've got to we got to toughen up, younger generations, toughen up. And I appreciate you guys because I see younger generations here who are tough and they're being taught by their parents to take responsibility for their actions and I'm I'm glad of that. But don't buy into the lies that are going to be fed to you in this culture out here. You take responsibility for your actions. You work hard. Don't have the idea that people owe it to you to make you happy. You go out and do what God has called you to do. No matter what people do to you, stand for the truth. Be a man, be a woman in God's eyes. And you'll be able to go to sleep at night and be thankful Wrongly produces this victim status in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter five. It says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. There's a general principle that any able bodied person that is required by God to provide for themselves and they refuse to engage in gainful employment in order to provide for their own needs. That others are not to give them anything. If they are. Sound in body and mind and able to provide for their own needs and required by God to do so, the principle given to the church is do not feed them. Now that sounds harsh, but that's actually loving because God does not want people who are undisciplined, cowardly, indolent, and lazy. To think that they're okay because they're not. If that is their character, they will go to hell. God calls us to be diligent. But I preached last week and I I looked at from the scriptures in depth, though, that God calls us to be generous to those that are truly needy. He calls for us to care for the widows and the orphans. And the impoverished, and the resident sojourners in the land, because those are groups of vulnerable people. God has a special place in his heart. And he says, when you see people that are truly needy, you reach out and you help them. Do not withhold from them when it is in your power to do good. But at the same time, you don't enable people to live in sin. That's not loving. You've got to help them and that's a biblical principle this idea of reparations and I know as a cisgendered white male people are saying you don't have any right to even talk about this well it's truth and so I'm going to talk about it the reality is this it doesn't make any sense to say that whites today who never owned slaves are guilty and owe African-Americans who themselves were never even slaves some type of reparations that's not biblical justice plain and simple in Ezekiel chapter 18 God says you will not punish the child for the father's sins but each man will die for his own sins. Look at, look at this. Let's put eyes on the text. Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, some of you were here. You know, I preached several messages strongly about and in opposition to the enslavement of Africans. And I tried to open the scriptures and show all of the biblical teaching on why that was evil for them to be enslaved. We looked at Jim Crow and how horrifically they were treated and by law treated in our nation. I'm not countering any of that. Everything that I preached there, I believe, is accurate. But when we're talking about being removed from those injustices and the laws being changed. And saying, well, You group of people today, you have to pay back this other group for what was done to them by your ancestors in the past. What I'm saying is God does not demand that. That's not a principle of God's justice. Ezekiel in chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me, verse one, saying, what do you mean when you use the proverb concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? Let's let's put it into uh, Ozarkian terminology. The fathers have eaten green persimmons and the children's teeth are set on edge. Have you ever eaten a green persimmon? Woo boy, howdy. All right. Pucker you right up. Here, Here's. Here's the Proverbs there. It's saying, our fathers did wrong, and the children are bearing the guilt for that. They're bearing the the brunt of that. Okay, Our fathers are the one that ate the sour grape, but it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. But the Lord is saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone but has restored to the debtor his pledge, he has robbed no one by violence but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes, kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. People are responsible for their own actions. And it is unjust for nations to demand reparations at law of children, great or grandchildren, great grandchildren, great great grandchildren for the sins of their fathers. And and this whole thing with our system and what is being expected again. It would say that whites, some of whom never even had slave holding ancestors, owe something to blacks, some of them who never had ancestors who were slaves. It doesn't make sense according to God's justice. (laughs) Finally, then, this idea of social justice just promotes greed and envy. When it constantly teaches you that you're entitled and others owe you, even though they haven't wronged you, actually, it just promotes greed and envy. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love envieth not In Psalm 73, it says, do not envy the wicked. You're judged for your own sin, according to Scripture. And the final point, this type of social justice undermines true biblical human relationships and friendships. And here's what I mean by that. As part of this social justice, you have the whole political correctness culture. And you have have to walk on eggshells. If you're around somebody from a different culture or a different race, they want you to it's like you have to constantly be afraid of using the correct terminology or asking the correct questions. And that if you do wrong, you're a racist. If you if you just do a little social snafu, you're a hater, you're a racist, you're bigoted and they have a right to be angry at you. I've subjected myself to the torment of listening through a book by Debbie Debbie Irving called "Waking Up White." And at one point in this book, she was talking about how she attended a white privilege con- conference, and she's a white woman, grew up in the suburbs, you know, had all of her white privilege. She goes to a white privilege conference because she's now an ally, right? She's wanting to promote this social justice. Well, she gets there, and she's one of the few white persons there. And they show a a video that a group in one of these sessions had put together about white privilege. And then they say, now we'd like feedback from everybody here about this video. And she said, well, her husband was um, like a producer for the show This Old House. And she said she knew all about... Because he would brought home hundreds of videos, rough drafts of videos she knew all about, examining videos and giving pointers and everything else. So she just jumps right in. And literally, people in that group were shouting her down. How dare you, as a white woman, how dare you come in here and give us advice about our video? And she talked about how ashamed she was and how she needed to repent of that and, and how insensitive she had been. Why? (laughs) They asked for feedback. She was there. But you see how evil an attitude that is? That just because the skin color of her is white, that they would then jump on her and feel like they have a right to treat her with hatred? With anger? This idea of social justice gives people a free pass to sin against God and sin against others. What happened with the Covington High School boys? Nathan Phillips, a Native American man. Acts as an aggressor toward those boys. The black Israelite group. When you listen to the videos. I don't recommend it necessarily, but I did. They were saying vile things to these boys. Vile, hateful things. I won't even repeat them here. But you know what? What? They were a privileged minority group. You know what? Nathan Phillips was from a privileged minority group. You know what? The boys were predominantly white. And, one of, and some of them even had MAGA hats on. What does that mean? The media leapt on that with their social justice lens. And automatically, these boys are portrayed as the oppressors. And they did not give the boys a fair hearing. But then the truth came out and they started to back down. But how many of them then turned to Nathan Phillips and said, you, sir, are a liar and you have brought about harm to these boys. They're getting death threats, some of them, because of what you have done toward them and the lies that you told about them. You black Israelites are vile, wicked people. The things you were saying, God condemns that. Repent. Very few in the national media were going to go that route. They were just going to have to turn around and, you know, say, well, we got this one wrong. Sorry. But how many of them took a stand for truth and justice? Very few. Why? Because they don't understand biblical justice. But we're called to justice. We're called to judge rightly. And we're called to love God and and move forward in this. Father, help us in this. Help us to love Christ who has saved us. Help us have love for others, even those who are our spiritual enemies. Help us to do justice and not be taken astray by empty and vain philosophies of this world. I pray that you'll bless the meal that we share together. Thank you for the time we have together. May you be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Is